0: It's Monday, January the 30th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press stops by. We'll take a closer look at Quebec's basic income pilot project. Filmmaker Barry Cohen discusses their new film, Unloved, Heronia's Forgotten Children. And Charlie Petit will chat about some of the... Mark Flala will stop by and so will Amy Amanti. But let's begin with the top story of the day. And it's federal politics because Parliament is back in session today. Economics and healthcare are expected to be at the top of the agenda. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says he will call on the House of Commons to hold an emergency debate on the privatization of health care. Rob Westgate has that element of the story.
1: It's a top priority for the leader as members of Parliament return to the House following a holiday break. Now Singh spent some of that time away holding roundtable discussions on health care in British Columbia, discussing emergency room overcrowding and worker shortages. He says healthcare is already understaffed, and he believes for-profit facilities will actually poach doctors and nurses away from hospitals. That is, of course, in response to Ontario's announcement earlier this month that it is moving some procedures to publicly funded private facilities to address a growing surgery waitlist. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press.
0: Jagmeet Singh is not the only politician weighing in on health care. Conservative MP Stephen Ellis says that throwing more money at the system is not the answer. All we're having is more big government, this top-down approach, this federalist approach to say that you must do this or you must do that.
1: And we know that that's not going to work. It hasn't worked in eight years, so why would we expect it's going
0: to work now? I think that's the biggest issue. Ontario Premier Doug Ford weighed in as well. He says he's looking forward to discussing funding with the federal government next week. I just look forward to uh, working with the Prime Minister and their team to come up with a program
1: that, again, will be transparent, will always be accountable, and make sure that we have funding in, in different areas, no matter if it's uh, hiring new nurses
0: or or doctors or working with us on the, on the backlog surgeries, uh, just to name a few. During the course of this parliamentary session, the final reports for the Emergencies Act inquiry will be handed down. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shared some thoughts on how leaders deal with citizens who are angry in times of protest. At the same time, um, I think leaders have a choice. What is responsible leadership? Well, I think responsible leadership is uh, acknowledging the, the concerns and anger that people are feeling and look to solve for it, look to provide solutions, look to reassure people, not to amplify that anger. Trudeau took a much more direct shot at Conservative leader Pierre Polyev earlier in the weekend. And while we were doing all this work last year, Mr. Polyev was out talking about how we should all invest in Bitcoin to opt out of inflation after he watched videos on YouTube about it. Pierre Polyev also gave a speech earlier in the weekend. Polyev laid out his key concerns of the federal government heading into the new parliamentary session. You are
1: responsible for the criminal code, for the borders that bring in the illegal guns. You are responsible for our national police force. And after eight years, you have given, you have given Canadian cities that are turning into crime zones.
0: Kauriev elaborated on his concerns about the state of Canada.
1: Seriously, look around you. Crime is raging out of control in our streets. Our people are desperate that they'll have to lose their homes because of rising inflation and interest rates the government promised would never happen. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation.
0: All the politicians are in Ottawa today, we'll share highlights uh, from question period or comments in the corridors as the week moves along, but exciting times in the world of federal politics. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. Is where you vote on Facebook on Friday, we asked you this, how should Canada go about bolstering its workforce of healthcare professionals? 40% of you said increasing student enrollment, 20% of you said recruiting internationally, 0% of you said retiring retirees, and 40% of you said other. Today's daily poll, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This will come up in the Tech Trends segment a little bit later in the hour about mechanical keyboards. But I'm curious, do you customize your technology, devices, and accessories? Yes, my software? Yes, my hardware? Yes to both? Or no? Certainly, as I listened to this really fun story in Tech Trends about mechanical keyboards and hearing the ways that people like to customize them with colors and layouts and setup and putting keys in different places and adding new languages, it got me thinking about my setup at home. And I don't know if I customize my setup. I don't know if I rig my setup in terms of hardware. But I am very particular about the way things are placed. The mouse has to be on the right-hand side. I like using a wired mouse versus a wireless mouse. I recently invested in one of those backlit LGB keyboards that lights up so I can keep my office lights off while I'm doing my work and still see my keys on the keyboard. So I don't know if I'm all the way into the zone of calling it full-blown customization, but I certainly have my preferences when it comes to hardware, even the type of keyboard that I like. I like a thicker, chunkier keyboard, not one of these flat, touchy keyboards that are too sensitive for my clumsy fingers. When it comes to the software side, Definitely that's somewhere where accessibility comes in. Because as I've told you plenty of times before, I like to increase the font on my phone. I like to increase the fonts on my web browsers. I like to put my phone into dark mode to use a black screen for higher contrast instead of the white screen, which hurts my eyes. So I definitely customize my software a smidge. I don't know if I go all the way into what you might call a full-blown rethinking of a customization, but I'm probably right there. I'm, I'm probably a yes to both, but it's just... It's just little things. It's not big things. It's not overhauls. Mike Ross, you're filling in for Alex Smythe today as we take a peek into your phone or into your office. Do you do anything to customize your setup?
2: Uh, Dave, just like you, when it comes to a laptop, uh, I do have some things, some preferences. So I prefer the wireless mouse uh, as opposed to a wired mouse. But I also do really like the backlit keyboard, yeah. and it's a, a lot of that is just um, as I'm as I've gotten older, vision is getting poorer, and I find that it helps me navigate the keyboard. Uh, I find especially when I'm working, <clears throat> for example, at an arena where you know the lights are dropped and brought back up numerous times in a night, it's nice to have that lit keyboard so I can navigate and not have to have big lights on in and around my working area. Mm. Um, When it comes to my phone, I definitely have increased the font over the last few years because of my vision um, deteriorating. So that's been very helpful. Uh, The other thing uh, as far as customization is is sort of personal preferences, right? So uh, ringtones, I go with uh, music and I, theme it through the year. So, like when I get to Christmas, my ringtone is Bing Crosby's Merry Maka. Um other times of the year, it's Dean Martin or the Foo Fighters, uh all kinds of different things. So I do that and I customize the um the wallpaper as well. I don't yeah. I don't go just with the stock footage. I've uploaded different things and customize it that way.
0: So it sounds like, uh, especially on your phone side, it's a lot about aesthetics, maybe more so than functionality. Other than the font size, of
2: course. It's well, the font size is huge. The volume uh, is is a big one for me as well. Um, uh, So it's and honestly, the aesthetic stuff. It's been the same thing basically since I've had. The phone, mm-hmm. so it, it mm-hmm. hasn't really changed. It's not something that I change on a regular basis, except the ringtone. The ringtone I change just because I like hearing, yeah, yeah excuse yeah. me, different <laughs> things at different times of the year. Um, but I'm, I do find myself with the brightness uh, of the of the screen and with the font size. That's something that I've had to change over the last couple of years, specifically.
0: What about on the phone case side of things? So I'm the kind of person, mm-hmm. I find one $8 phone case that I like and that's my phone case forever until I get a new phone because I'm lazy and I don't like change. But, uh, but what about you, Mike? Do you ever mess around with the phone case at all?
2: Yeah, there was one brand that I bought um, a few years ago um, at Costco. And really liked it because it was really solid. Um, And then in the last, uh, probably the last two phones that I've had over the last, say, seven or eight years, that brand of case isn't sold where I buy myself. Oh, okay. So, I've had to bu- you know basically buy whatever they've had. Now, I've been overall I've been pretty satisfied with what I've bought, but it's it's not my number one preference. It's more just the fact that I'm lazy and I'm not going to go yeah. to a second <laughs> or third place to find it. Um, but with the uh, tablet that I bought late last year, I did buy a case with it. Um and the the one that it, it, like like it was a protective case, which was fine. But I didn't realize that this protect, this protective case did not have a cover for the screen. Oh, it's weird. So I bought a second uh, one that not only covers the screen, but also acts as a stand yes. for the screen um, that, that's all sort of built into the cover. So uh, I, I really enjoy the 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 protection that that offers my tablet, but I also enjoy the fact that when, for example, when I took the train a couple of weekends ago, I was able to put, it down on the tray and basically have it upright and be able to watch it and it wasn't resting on someone's seat it wasn't resting (laughs) against the tray it was resting on itself it's it's built in so that was very convenient Yeah, much less
0: precarious we like that one through and through mike thank you for your thoughts on this one we'll talk to you a little bit later in the show in fact we'll talk to you in just a couple of moments with the national weather updates but in the meantime you should vote on the poll at accessible media inc on facebook or at accessible media on twitter I just mentioned you're going to hear from Mike with the weather. Well, here he is.
2: Thanks, Dave. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We'll begin in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it'll be cloudy. Some snow today, but that will change to rain later on in the day. The high is plus five this morning, though, the wind chill minus 10 in halifax there's periods of rain ending early this morning then it makes a sun and cloud and a temperature steady near seven montreal cloudy and some snow today the high minus 10. the wind chill minus 20 this morning minus 15 this afternoon you're going to notice that's going to be a bit of a theme across the country today the wind chill uh in ottawa increasing cloudiness a few flurries this afternoon a high of minus seven the wind chill this morning, minus 17. This afternoon, minus 11. Toronto is cloudy today with a high of minus 1. The wind chill, minus 11. As you head out the door today, minus 4 this afternoon. It was, Thunder it, was Bay. it was
0: cold this morning, Mike. Walking yeah. in, and I, had, I had the toque and the gloves on. That's how cold it was.
2: Absolutely. I, I As soon as I open the curtains in the morning, if I see the trees, the big, tall trees in the forest across the street, sort of bending in the wind, I know, yeah toque, scarf, mitts, gloves. It's all got to go on on a day like that. Uh, Up in Thunder Bay, even colder, but it will be sunny today. So at least you're getting the sunshine, a little vitamin D for you. The high is minus 12 or 20 rather. The wind chill minus 38 this morning, minus 28 this afternoon. There's a risk of frostbite there. In Winnipeg, it's mainly sunny. The high is minus 20. The wind chill minus 37 this morning and minus minus. 30 this afternoon in Calgary, clearing skies with a high of minus seven. The wind chill is minus 17 this morning, minus 12 this afternoon. To Edmonton, clearing skies with a high of minus eight. The wind chill this morning, minus 23. The wind chill this afternoon, minus 11. Into Yellowknife, it'll be sunny. The high is minus 30. That sounds weird, doesn't it, Dave? Your high today is minus 30. Ouch. Uh, The wind chill, got to be careful in Yellowknife today. Minus 46 this morning and minus 39 this afternoon. Frostbite can happen in minutes, so be careful there. Vancouver has increasing cloudiness today and a high of plus one. And Victoria, a mix of sun and clouds. A high of plus three they do have a bit of a wind chill in victoria this morning minus six oh as you head out today yeah a little bit different you don't hear that in victoria a lot <laughs> but with the high of plus three your minus six, and that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. I'd theorize the
0: people in Yellowknife are better at handling minus forty-six than the people in Victoria are at minus six. Uh, sorry, Victoria. Oh, not meaning, no doubt. Not, not meaning to take shots at you, but some of you all don't no. have the appropriate uh, coats for that.
2: Mike, I would say <laughs> I would say folks in uh, Victoria have to go deep in that closet <laughs> to find uh, clothes that they probably haven't worn very often. <laughs> Mike, thank you for this. Okay, Dave.
0: That's Mike Ross. You'll hear from him a little bit later in the show. But coming up next, Michelle McQuigg of the Canadian Press will reflect on the life of former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion, who passed away over the weekend. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion passed away over the weekend. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Michelle has some more as people remember the former mayor. Hey, good morning, Michelle.
3: Good morning, Dave.
0: Michelle, keep it in mind that this is a national show and Mississauga is a suburb of Toronto, a really big suburb of Toronto. What are some of the things to note about Hazel McCallion?
3: Yeah, you're all probably wondering why on earth are we talking about a municipal mayor and her death and why was this a big deal and why are people like the Prime Minister weighing in on this? Uh, The reason is because for those who don't know, Hazel McCallion was a really colorful character and a notable one in politics in a few ways. She was the mayor of Mississauga for 36 years. Believe it or not, that is no longer the longest serving mayor in in this province anyway. Uh, Someone surpassed that mark a few years back. But during that time mississauga was a was truly just a suburb of toronto and not a very active or, or busy community on her three decades plus of of leadership that city grew massively and it's now one of the sixth largest it, it is the sixth largest city in canada that's as of, as crazy of now. it's
0: wild right
3: totally so and along the way she uh was very much herself. Um, (laughs) There was an era in Toronto with some seriously big personalities and in top jobs. We're talking about the likes of Mel Lastman, another name that might mean something to people outside of this area. Hazel McCallion had a slightly different brand, uh, but was equally notable. She was a real, real straight talker, the kind of person who would stand up and, Yell at politicians at a convention to stop messing around and start getting things done. Um, uh, The kind who said that Lucien Bouchard should have been charged with treason back in the early 90s. That kind of person. Uh, But also very, very community minded, always showing up at community events, really busy. uh, Trying hard to stay connected to the grassroots. And the other notable aspect of her was her wild popularity. She stopped campaigning after a while. For decades, she didn't go on the road and knock doors Uh, She wouldn't really encourage campaign donations, and she would still be elected time and again with more than 90% of the vote. Wow.
0: Yeah. 36 years. When you think about that in, in context of the way in which people can get fed up with a politician inside four or five years these days, uh, 36 years is a remarkable, remarkable length of time in that office. And yeah, As you point really out, is. the city changed substantially during that time. And she was someone who had to navigate those changes. So, Michelle, you mentioned that lots of notable folks uh, had some reaction this weekend. So let's hear from a few of these individuals. Toronto Mayor John Tory reflected on his time with McCallion.
2: You know, if you looked up public service in the dictionary, uh, you'd see Hazel McCallion's picture there because that was what she was all about. And she uh, carried it off with, uh, you know, great candor and, and, and incredible frankness and, and great ability to speak truth to power. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you could uh, you
3: could work with her and, and uh, talk with her and, and learn from her as I did.
0: Ontario Premier Doug Ford shared his admiration for McCallion.
3: No matter if you agreed or you didn't agree, she'd give you, you know, the advice that she
1: believed in. And 99% of the the time, she she was bang on and she'd give you the reasons why she's giving you the advice. Uh, There's no
0: politician in the country that really understood the grassroots, the people, more than Hazel did. She was always out there. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says McCallion was someone who he leaned on for perspective. Over the past couple of decades, I had many opportunities to speak with her, to learn from her, to get advice from her. Michelle, that's just a a snippet of some of the reaction that you and your colleagues gathered over the weekend. But what stands out to you from some of this reaction?
3: Uh, A lot of it actually has to do with the bipartisan nature of the support that she garnered. her branding her pol- her a lot of her political views w- would would fall into what some people would call a lot of people would describe as a more conservative playbook certainly her her economic and fiscal policies were more aligned with that party but she was courted over the course of her career by all three uh, the liberals the ndp and and the Conservatives all asked her to run for them, and I believe in a federal capacity. I could be mistaken about that, but she was definitely approached by everyone. Uh, She turned them all down on the grounds that she was too busy. (laughs) By all accounts, (laughs) she was really busy. Uh, She was 101 years old when she died, and by all accounts, she was working up until the very last weeks of her life when she had a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Um, And you're hearing some of this now, that a lot of the reaction was talking about her unbelievable work ethic, the fact that she was deeply involved, really wanted to stay focused on the community aspect. You heard the Premier talking about that. Um, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, was not the only politician to say that she was a regular source of advice for, for them. Many people were saying that she was readily available, that they they loved to bounce ideas off of her. Uh, so that's what really has struck me, is just the really wide array of reaction um, from across the spectrum, all, all saying very similar things.
0: Michelle, until yesterday, Hazel McCallion was someone I was deeply unfamiliar with. I'm a newish, I'm a newish Torontonian, I'm a newish Ontarian, and I spent a lot of time last night reading about her. That is a very, very interesting municipal politician and it speaks to an impact on a community that's going to be held for a long, long time.
3: It does, and if I can just plug the work of my colleagues, Alison Jones and Tyler Griffin, they did a lovely job yesterday covering her obituary.
0: Absolutely, they did a really, really fantastic job. Michelle, hopping over to a different province, Quebec that province continues to roll out their basic income pilot their universal basic income pilot what are some of the notable details of this pilot
3: I think we should put some quotes around universal there because that's one of the aspects okay. of this
0: <laughs> What's well, one of the criticisms we'll get there <laughs>
3: Indeed but it, it, this is a, a basic income pilot very similar to the kind of thing that we've talked about a number of times on the show um, for those who do qualify and that's about eighty four thousand people. The criteria has to do with people who have conditions that prevent them from working for at least five and a half of the past six years um so for those people, they are getting a quite a significant boost, not just in their income that's going up by thirty plus thirty plus percent uh so a good three hundred and some dollars per month, but they're also getting the capacity to maintain some other earnings. They can work. They can maintain a savings up to, I believe, twenty thousand dollars. They can work up to, uh, I'm I'm forgetting the exact number, but significantly higher than what you normally see on social assistance. And you can mm-hmm. have all these things at much higher thresholds before clawbacks are triggered. So. It's a it's a three prong program of sorts for those who qualify and that's where we ran into some more critiques around the fact that the eligibility is really, really tightly controlled. My colleague Morgan Lowry did a great job with the story yesterday. Um, she interviewed a number of people and she only managed to get one voice who actually qualified a couple of the other people she spoke to uh, someone had been off work for the past 10 years or so but his condition is still considered temporary so he doesn't qualify uh, someone else has a very debilitating condition uh, hasn't very much in the same position as the uh, interview subject who did qualify but it's only been in play for him for two and a half or three years so he's out too mm. um, so that's the that's the The main focus of the critique of the program as it starts to roll out is that They'd like uh, those anti-poverty activists and a number of other groups would like to see it expanded to a much broader segment of the population. Yeah, coming back
0: to the idea of universal, but uh, at this point it's still a pilot project, probably similar to what we saw in Ontario a couple of years ago that got uh, that got cast away,
3: they got after, quickly yeah, disbanded after a change of regime. After yes. a change of
0: regime. So, it, but it is interesting to see more and more provinces rolling this out. But certainly the reaction, saying we need this for more people, is perhaps predictable and understandable. That yes, indeed, poverty is a big, big problem. I'm going to be sharing some stories in the next hour of this show to British Columbia about some issues for people experiencing homelessness and the surge that has happened over there. So definitely, and when we're talking about poverty activism, anti-poverty activism, uh, this is a big, big piece of it.
3: Michelle. And let's... it's worth noting, too, that the regime uh, is not going to be changing anytime soon. There was an election in Quebec just last year, so this program actually is going to have a chance to generate some real data over the next mm-hmm. three, or three mm-hmm. years or so before the next vote. So that should be interesting to watch.
0: Michelle, one more topic to get to. The World Health Organization considered changing some Terminology about COVID nineteen over the weekend. What was the issue? Yeah,
3: the issue was whether or not to, to revoke the designation of a global health emergency. Um, most people think about the start of the pandemic as March eleventh, when the WHO declared it to be a pandemic. That's when everything really started to end, go into warp speed around closures and 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 travel advisories and all that kind of stuff that we all, I'm sure, still remember very clearly. Uh, A few weeks before that, though, is when the WHO really got this process going by declaring a global health emergency. It's less flashy, but that's what triggered a number of legally binding responses from member countries. That's when the WHO could start making recommendations for things like quarantining policies and border closures that countries were, were not fully obliged but almost obliged to act on. So that groundwork really got laid on january 30th 2020 even if most people weren't really noticing at that point because most cases were still in china so the issue here was whether or not to lift that designation uh yesterday my colleague laura Osman uh prepared a, a little guide to this whole situation and this morning uh because there's several hours ahead of us the who declared or the, the, the head of the who decided to keep that measure in place uh, his grounds for doing that were that while things have improved a lot, we are still seeing an uptick of cases in the past six weeks or eight weeks or so of about 170,000 people still died over the past eight weeks. Uh, there are still countries without vaccines, uh, without therapeutics. Uh, misinformation campaigns exist even in countries with those kinds of tools. So on all of those grounds, he opted to leave that designation in place.
0: Yeah, even if you look domestically, certainly there's been a stabilization in regards to COVID-19, but we're still talking about anywhere Mm -hmm. between four to 5,000 people hospitalized like like across the country in terms of national numbers and a couple hundred people dying every week as a result of COVID. So even if there's been a stabilization, certainly the strain and stress that it that it puts on the system is there. Maybe we're not quite where the Omicron variant was a year ago at this time, with almost ten thousand people in hospital nationally, but we're still talking about a major strain on the system. So no, I know that's that that's me just looking very inwardly, very myopically, simply at Canada. But definitely, like those issues persist across the world, and and there are places. Of of course, dealing with um, uh, uh, not the same access as you put it to a vaccine or their own their own strains in their own health system that are under resourced anyway. So, definitely, when you're talking about a public health emergency, whether or not there's an uh, uh, as as an acute an emergency going on, there still is a major major strain
3: for sure. And and all all you were saying about the domestic picture is backed by health officials here. In fact, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, the chief public health officer, had said even if the WHO does wind up lifting that designation, which they didn't in the end, but had had they done so when asked what would change here, she said basically not much. We're going to stay the course. We're going to keep promoting vaccines. We're going to keep tracking the things we track. Um, that's another aspect that's has come into play here is that a lot of countries with active uh, COVID situations, even with vaccines and therapeutics, have really tr- ramped down a lot of their surveillance efforts. So it's hard to get a true picture of, of, of the, sca- the scope of things. And that was part of the rationale for the WHO's decision. But even had they gone the other direction, not a whole lot would have changed here, at least. Yeah.
0: Michelle, thank you for this. Have yourself a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you Friday for the news panel.
3: Sounds good. You too, Dave. Take
0: care. That's Michelle McQuig, the Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, filmmaker Barry Cohen discusses their new documentary film, Unloved, Hieronia's Forgotten Children. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business minutes.
1: Last week ended with little to no movement on Canada's main stock index, while the U.S. markets performed only slightly better. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 14 points, closing at 20,714. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 29 points to 33,978, while the Nasdaq rose 109 points. Overseas this morning, it was a decent start for the week. In Japan, with the Nikkei finishing up 51 points at 27,433 On the other hand, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong closed way down, dropping 619 points to 22,070. Overseas this morning, Nissan and Renault have agreed to make their mutual cross-shareholdings equal at 15%, and Europe is cutting more energy ties with Russia. A ban on imports of diesel fuel and other products made from crude oil in Russian refineries takes effect February 5th. And the loonie is trading at 74.93 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
0: It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The next segment explores a problematic part of Canadian history. It contains discussion of discrimination, abuse, and discriminatory language faced historically by people with and without disabilities. So viewer discretion is advised. A new documentary had its broadcast premiere this past weekend on CBC. The film investigates the horrifying truth: treatment of youth at the former Heronia Regional Centre in Orillia, Ontario. The documentary also explores the personal story of the filmmaker on their journey to uncover the truth. Before we welcome in the documentary's filmmaker, let's get a short clip from the trailer for unloved Heronia's forgotten children. In this clip, you will hear a mixture of voices, including survivors from the former institution. Let's roll the clip.
4: The sadism that occurred at Heronia was absolutely the norm
3: went there in isolation. They broke my teeth, they broke my legs. We had a bunch of psychopaths
5: taking care of us. I was terrified. They drugged you up. They drugged you up. Who would believe me?
4: Who would believe any of us? It was a deeply loveless place. There are spaces that tell people that they are unloved and unlovable at every turn.
0: Barry Cohen is the filmmaker behind the documentary and is here to tell you more about it. Take hey, good morning, Barry. Thank you for making time for us today.
5: Thank you for having me, Dave.
0: Why was this a film that you felt the need to make?
5: Well, when I embarked on uh, the research and started thinking about making the film shortly after the class action lawsuit in uh, settled in uh, late 2013, As I started doing research and read the plaintiff's uh, statement of claim um, from the lawyers, I was completely shocked and very dismayed at what I read from so many um, survivors who were telling similar stories of grave harms that had happened to them as children. And I just knew, you know, and I didn't have to talk to too many people, but I just knew that nobody really knew. That this was going on, that maybe there had been things published in the newspapers, inquiries here and there, things that would have kind of bubbled up. But I just knew that people really didn't know. And I wanted to make a film. You know, I guess I'm an educator at heart and uh, documentary is such a great way to inform and educate and and create a call to action as well. And I just knew that uh, a story needed to be told.
0: It's a very difficult story to tell because of the trauma experienced by people. How did you go about getting survivors to tell their stories?
5: Very good question. Um, well, you know, this took me about seven years. And so over the over the years, I was able to um, hear survivor stories over and over again because a lot of them, or a small handful anyway, of them, who um, embarked on with support from allies and others, were able to tell their story in various speaking engagements, venues. They went to, you know, community groups and and stakeholders and hospitals and and uh, not so much hospitals, but universities. and and they were involved in various forms of storytelling and I would uh, go along and accompany them. So I would hear often the stories. And also when I met them in 2014, I met Patricia Seth and Marie Slark, who were the, there's Patricia Seth, who, uh, these were the lead class action litigate, litigants, the plaintiffs, the real warriors who who, uh, who pushed for this um, accountability and, and a call for justice. Um, I got to know them and heard their stories many times. So by the time I was able to sit down with the camera, we knew each other, and I I, I think we had a really good um, uh, relationship of trust. And every step of the way, I was always getting consent and making sure that they were comfortable telling their story. And they really wanted to share their story. Uh, they didn't get a chance to do so in court because the settlement happened outside of the courtroom, right? It was a settlement, so they never went to trial. So they never get to, t- to tell their story in a, in a really broad way. So at the very least I thought this film could be that for them.
0: As you went through this process and, and captured these stories, mm-hmm. what what was that like, like for you at a personal level, certainly as a filmmaker and a storyteller, that the story isn't about you but you have to take some of this in. So what kind of toll does that take on you to hear such traumatic stories over and over again?
5: It was very difficult. And I think the only blessing, as much as I would have liked to have done the film much faster, you know, we had we were reliant on funding and, and it was hard initially to raise money for a film like this. A lot of people didn't want to hear it. Thankfully, the CDC was very supportive and others, but... Um, it had to happen at the right time. So because it took a while, I needed a lot of time to process um, and also to check in on the safety of the storytellers too, that even though they were out in the community telling their story, you still always have to check in with people make sure they're okay. And, and are you okay? And my crew, are they okay? Mm-hmm. So the fact that it took some time to get made was actually a blessing because it allowed time to process a lot of the pain and the sadness It was very sad, and and I remember that first time that I was actually interviewing people inside the institution on one of the tours, and this was back in 2014 in the fall, and uh, I found it a very overwhelming experience. In
0: 1960, Pierre Burton wrote a a really uh, in-depth picture of what the conditions were like for people inside the institution, inside the Toronto Daily Star. and I wanna come back to that date, 1960. The institution mm. continued to operate for decades after that. Why do you think it took so long for, for there to be change, to for people to care about the experiences of, of these people who were surviving just horrific conditions?
5: I think because what he was touching on And I don't know how much he was aware of it, but I think what he was touching on was a whole system of thinking. A whole system of thinking about difference and about um, discrimination. And a system that was built to lock away people labeled with or living with disabilities, children, and it's very difficult, I think, for the government. We know how slow government is to, to be, you know, to affect change. Even when maybe some individual politicians and actors think that they know what the right thing is to do, it's very, very hard to to create change in that way. I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is the real change. I think happened when families got more involved and realized that separating themselves, you know, being separated from their children maybe wasn't such a great thing and that the community really needed more supports to keep families together. And that that took a very, very long time. Like it was a whole zeitgeist, you know, and it wasn't just in Canada. It was pretty much, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but I think very much in the developed world, this was considered the norm. If I can put that in air quotes, the norm. Mm-hmm. To institutionalize people who are different um, who aren't considered and, and badly considered, you know, the mythology around productivity and around, you know, oh well, these children, you know, are they trainable and, and all of that. like the dehumanization was just so normalized. and it's hard to get people to change their thinking. It takes a long time to do that. and and it's like chipping away, chipping away. And I think even now, today, with long term care, we're going to be having this conversation about long term care and institutional, because that's institutionalization, too, yeah. for a long time yet. We know it's not working. We know it's not great. We know it's very sad. Uh, and, and how long is it going to take for us to change that model?
0: Uh, Along those lines, the documentary does show some parallels in terms of the conversation we've been having about residential schools and its impact on Indigenous youth and communities. How do all these stories of institutionalization, whether it be long-term care, residential schools for people with disabilities or for people from different cultural backgrounds, how does this all come together in in understanding a shared history?
5: Well, uh, when I was actually making the film, like in the early days, I knew in my heart that the the core theme was when you have people who you deem to be different, you end up dehumanizing them. One does end up dehumanizing them, and that's wrong. But I think there is something we have to fight in our almost tribal nature um, and when you do that then you end up creating in your mind and i'm talking at a systemic level a uh, uh, despised population and then you want to reform it or you want to so so you separate them off from from so-called conventional you know mainstream society and when you do that then all bets are off in terms of what you think you can do I mean, certainly if you look at the history of the Holocaust, that was the same thing. Mm -hmm. There was a despised population. I'm Jewish, so, you know, I I know this history. Um, Many, many Jews and non-Jews know this history, of course, and we can never forget. But it's a very tough but instructive lesson that when you, you know, dehumanize people, then it's not that far away to believing that it's okay to do anything to them. Because you don't think they they feel the same way. Like Maurice Lark says in the film, you know, they treated us like we didn't have any feelings. And I think that's true. I think in order to get away with what they were doing, a certain model of care, quote unquote model of care, that was very industrial. that didn't think that children um, even if they were different or came from poor circumstances or for whatever reason, ended up in the institution. Some assessed or, or labeled as living with a disability, who were, you know, uh, thought of as not feeling emotions or a sense of pain or loss the way, you know, somebody else might. So it's it's a very slippery slope, you see. So early on, I recognized that with with what the indigenous community was telling us about the grave harms that happened under colonialism and and the kind of genocidal practices that um, saw Indigenous nations and Indigenous populations as less than white European, when you have that sense of difference in your mind, erroneously, but nonetheless, when power people in power have that sense of difference in their mind, then all bets are kind of off, aren't they? Then you can justify almost anything. And that is what I found very, very troubling. And that was the connection for me.
0: Mm. Barry, the the film premiered over the weekend on on CBC. Mm. What's the reaction been like since uh, since it was released?
5: The reaction's been um, amazing, um, very gratifying. Uh, it's been um, very well embraced by by many and many communities and many. Many people have come forward to me, or you know, in various social media, to to talk about their experiences, either as a you know a sibling, a relative. You know, I'm hearing stories about my father, my mother, my aunt, my brother, my sister, uh, me. Uh, you know, I'm hearing all kinds of stories about that go back years, and and in some cases even more contemporary. Um, people who there's so much pain uh, around this and and good stories, too, of people who recognize that this isn't what they wanted for their families, for their family members, and were able to either get them out or, um, or to find another path forward. Um, the film does take you to a redemptive place, so it's also a story of resilience and it's a story of hope in that resilience and in um, survivors reclaiming a sense of their own story, and mm-hmm. and I think many people have responded to that and find it so gratifying on that level. You know,
0: Barry, it's a difficult story to tell, and you did a really excellent job telling it. Thank you for taking the time to make the documentary, and thank you for thank making you. time for us this morning.
5: Thank you so much, and thanks for having me, Dave.
0: That's filmmaker Barry Cohen. You can find Barry's documentary, Unloved, Hironia's Forgotten Children, available on CBC Gem. Coming up after the break... We switch gears a little bit when Amy Manti reviews the Gothic thriller film *The Pale Blue Eye*. But first, custom computer keyboards are making are becoming more common. Mike Dubusky will tell you more about them in Tech Trends.
2: Enthusiasts showed up to a mechanical keyboard meetup in Manhattan's West Village over the weekend. Will Fan was one of the organizers. It's
0: usually, just bring your keyboard or just show up. Talk to other people about,
1: like,
2: what you're doing, what you're planning to build, what you have built. Custom keyboards can be various shapes, like Riley Bay's pink Meow 75 board.
3: It's called Meow because that's, like, the onomatopoeia for how cats meow in Korean, and it's shaped like a cat. Key caps
2: are also highly customizable, like Siobhan's coffee-themed keyboard.
3: There's
4: actually Arabic alphabet on here as well to go with Arabic coffee.
2: And so are key switches, which John Poblador says determine how typing on a keyboard feels and sounds little plastic cubes with a cross-shaped stem on it. And the internals of the cross-shaped stem is actually what determines the feet. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike DeBusse, ABC News.
0: back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Netflix has a new gothic thriller starring Christian Bale. Before you hear Amy Amante's take on the film, here's a clip from the trailer of The Pale Blue Eye. From director Scott Cooper. Detective Landor, one of our cadets. West Point Academy
1: 1830. Hanged himself last night.
0: A soldier on patrol finds the cadet's body. That's the
1: matter for the coroner. I'm afraid that's not the end of it. It's hard was carved from his chest. Who type of fella could do this?
3: you have to be. A bad man.
1: You need
3: to decipher this.
2: A scrap of paper.
3: Rumor has it there are
2: instructions for immortality. Someone there? A young man walks through a
0: darkened forest. He spins around, then turns back. Someone tackles him.
1: Another cadet is missing. Poe, I need you to discreetly infiltrate the cadets. What is this? Blood, symbols, rituals. Oh, my Lord.
5: Man will do most anything to cheat
0: death. Christian Bale.
1: Where are the facts? Where are the simple
0: facts? The truth! Harry Melling as Edgar Allan Poe. I believe
1: the dead haunt us because we love them too little.
0: Landor and the cadets attend a funeral
2: they look up at another hanging body.
3: we are no closer to finding who's responsible for this than we were a month ago
0: Amy Manty has a review of the film hey good morning Amy
4: hey good morning Dave
0: Amy sometimes in a long trailer we understand a little bit more about the plot not so much in this case so what is the story behind the pale blue eye
4: well, I suppose some things just to hold in your brain about this is that uh, it's set in 1830, which I think is important to remember, um, and that we are following an alcoholic retired detective who is Augustus Landor, as we point out, played by Christian Bale. And he's been asked by the military to investigate um, the murder of cadet Leroy Fry, who is, is the first person to be murdered. And of course, as we discover, as you learn in the trailer, that there are several murders that need to be investigated. Um, that need to be solved here. And who's helping uh, Detective Landor solve these murders? Well, none other than who in history will become the famous poet, Edgar Allan Poe, (laughs) um, which is what I thought was kind of interesting about the way that this, uh, the container that this film was was created in.
0: (laughs) So Christian Bale, Probably one of the top actors of his generation, if not the best actor of his generation. There are some hits and there are some misses, but yeah. there have been a couple Academy Awards and a couple nominations along the way, too. So what did you make of Christian Bale's performance in this movie?
4: Do you know, I, uh, it was interesting to me because when I started watching this film, I, I, did, I don't do any research before I watch a film. I, I try and put pieces together myself before I go digging any deeper. And I was like, huh, I recognize that voice. I recognize that voice. And then it took me a minute because Christian Bale for me was so disguised that I didn't recognize him at first. Um, I've never been the biggest Christian Bale fan, if I'm honest. Um, I I think I liked him in American Psycho, but uh, he wasn't he wasn't my Batman. So I lost faith in Christian Bale. (laughs) But I think in this one, you know, there's there's a Christian Bale brings a real darkness to his performances. And of course, Mm -hmm. this is a dark gothic thriller um and so that matches really well
0: yeah the american psycho certainly was one performance uh, the machinist what he did to his body in terms of getting down to yeah. 103 pounds for that role like unbelievable what he did to himself uh the the big short fantastic he was great in that film he's he's got some real hits along the way he does, oh yeah. my gosh he, the role he plays in the fighter as uh as as mark Wahlberg's uh brother as uh, mm-hmm. as as Mickey, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the boxer, uh, but but play, playing like the drug-addled brother. Oh my gosh, Christian Bale. When this guy hits, he hits like a million dollars. And
4: we can say that with any big A-lister actor, right? They have hits and they have misses, and uh, that's not their fault as performers. It's often uh, it's often a flaw in the writing or the the, the design of the of the show or the mm-hmm, movie, right?
0: Mm-hmm. What um, about other members of the cast who stood out to you?
4: Well of course we've got Harry Melling who plays our Edgar Allan Poe and uh he's kind of creepy in this. Um and I I you know I wasn't around in the 1830s when Edgar Allan Poe was a was a living human being so I don't know uh whether Poe was a creepy human at all but they're playing him kind of creepy in sort of his affect and the way he talks and kind of uh, melodic and that kind of thing, but I thought you know if that's uh, the representation that that was kind of an interesting choice. We have Gillian Anderson, who Ooh. I have, I know a bit of a fan crush. I'm a big X Files fan, uh, and so Gillian Anderson, who is almost unrecognizable in this film as well. Uh, she, this character is, I, I don't know, the voice that she does with this character is beyond. Uh, odd we shall say um and then robert duvall who makes an appearance in this so you got a handful of a-listers um in this particular piece that brings all of the components together
0: you've really been on the thriller beat of late amy where did this one land in terms of the thrilling amy meter
4: yeah um we've been talking a lot about the different genres in which like you know thrillers are sort of categorizing themselves in uh this is a gothic thriller and i i have a I have a love for movies that are kind of in gothic style. Um, And so for me, I thought this was really interesting. And of course, you know, I will never give you, I will never give anything away. (laughs) But uh, what's nice about this particular one, again, if there's a movie that does a couple of plot twists that I don't see coming, I'm much more intrigued by the end of it because it's kind of hard to trick me. Uh, when i watch movies sometimes i'm like yeah okay i could have written this myself i see where this is going um but when there's a plot twist even if it's not the greatest plot twist i go oh that i didn't see that coming okay um so there's a couple of those in this one for fans who who love the the plot twist
0: yeah if you can break if you can break like the cynicism of someone who watches a lot of movies that that's Mm -hmm. a real tribute as a filmmaker if you don't telegraph your twists well done well done on all accounts uh amy you mentioned that in general you've become fascinated with the way in which genre is is involved here and of course inside of this being a thriller it's also historical fiction where are you landing in terms of historical fiction or period fiction at this point?
4: it's so interesting for me because you look at the word historical meaning history and fiction meaning fake and those two words don't seem to actually fit together fake history uh and, you know unless you're on twitter a lot these days. whatever i digress uh, but you know the the idea of fake history to me is super interesting so of course Uh, If you'll let me go on this little tangent, Dave, I wanted to know more about Edgar Allan Poe, because I'm a fan of his poetry. I have dabbled in his poetry. You know, it's part of what you do in your high school literature. And then, um, you know, a little bit after that. But I don't really know much about the human. And I wanted to actually know if he had been to West Point, because, of course, in this film, they mention that he's a cadet at West Point. So how historical fiction is this historical fiction. So he actually became um, a part of the army when he was 18 years old because he had incurred a whole bunch of gambling debts. Oh my. But he was just in the army at this point. He wasn't even at West Point, which is a very esteemed mm-hmm. uh, military academy, right? So uh, in, in basically in the army, he was um, uh, somebody who became really well known to <laughs> to have a mind for putting together explosives. And, uh, and he climbed up the ranks really fast. In fact, he climbed up the ranks so fast that he got bored with it. And before he was able to uh, leave on his contract, right, you have to spend five years within the Army, he decided that he wanted out and uh, was looking for the next thing. Um, and that was when he found West Point in the 1830s. But then, in 18, th- shortly after joining West Point, he got a letter from his foster father, didn't know he had a foster father, that said... Basically, I want to cut all ties with you, no more communication, we're no longer family, you're on your own. And so Edgar Allan Poe thought that the best revenge he could possibly have on his foster father was to get himself kicked out of West Point. And so he did everything he could and he occurred hundreds and hundreds of demerit points and um, uh, all within a very short period of time. And, uh, you know, they say, legend has it, that some of the things that he did uh, in terms of his misconduct range from him being constantly drunk, which I think we can believe he died uh, drunk, um, uh, but also showing up in formation naked, which was one of the things that he liked to do. All right. So a bit of a trickster. And just before he left West Point, he was able to... um, to dupe his uh, fellow uh, West Point Academy members of 170 dollars, and that helped him publish his first poems.
0: And in 1830, that's a lot of money in the in the, in the 19th that's of century. Money. That's a that's a lot of scratch 170 bucks. Inflation yeah. comes for us all. Uh, Amy, I like this Edgar Allan Poe a uh, little his, history sidebar. And, and, and he died at, that's uh, good.
4: Yeah,
0: 1849. He was dead. Well, wow. uh, Amy, let's go back to the film, The Pale Blue Eye. Yeah. How was how was the audio description?
4: the audio description uh becomes really important again we talk about this a lot in thrillers where things that are happening that um are often in silence or in this case they talk about gruesome murder so of course you're shown a gruesome murder but you're not really described a gruesome murder and they they strike that balance that balance they're like oh i didn't want to hear that um and then there are ways of describing things where it's where it serves the work. Sometimes you don't want to over describe it. So I think it did around this film, those are described quite nicely too.
0: I can tell this film had your curiosity, but I'm it curious totally how did. you would finally give it
4: in terms of a rating out of 10. I gave it a 9 out of 10. I wow. was my my, my the, the the genre fits for me, sort of the filming uh, aesthetic of it that dark aesthetic fits for me that performances fit for me the twists fit for me um there are so, a, a few plot flaws but what movie doesn't have a few plot flaws it's in every movie they're written by humans after all <laughs> Dave brown right we're, we're we're fallible we have our um, flaws so yeah i would i would uh, i would sit down happily and watch this movie a second time in order to uh try and see if i could place back the moments where they where they foreshadow on the plot twists
0: And Amy, just to close a loop on this, I mentioned Christian Bale and the nomination he picked up for Best Supporting Actor in the movie The Fighter. The name of the boxer was Mickey Ward and his brother was Dickie Ward. Dickie That's right. So there you go. Closing the loop on this segment. Amy, thank you for this.
4: Thanks, Dave.
0: That's Amy Amante with a review of the Netflix film The Pale Blue Eye. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update and then we'll talk about sports a little bit. It was a busy weekend in the world of parasports and in the world of football. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.